welcome to the Wave Podcast. My name's Connor. I'm here with Sonny, and we're lucky enough to be talking to George Gascon, who is about uh, three years into a four-year term as Los Angeles District Attorney. Um, and it's about the time, I think, when you would be looking back on uh, your successes and failures and uh, kind of taking stock. Uh, when, as we start, do you think yep. you could give yourself, you know, sort of a grade on how you've done in this mission of uh, criminal justice reform? Yeah, well, first of all, th thanks so much. Right, Appreciate yeah. you guys uh, taking the time to do this. You know, I think that uh, I would probably overall give myself a, a, a positive uh, grade. Uh, unquestionably, there are things that, you know, have work well, other things that continue to need improvement. Uh, but when you look at overall and, and you, you know, you look at the platform upon which I was elected, right, which was looking for a path to create safety in our community at the same time that we were going to move away from, you know, the, 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 the past impact of mass incarceration, of um, death penalty, prosecuting kids as adults, uh, you know, sometimes uh, lacking on police accountability. If you look at all those components, I think we've done very well. And, you know, sometimes I, I think it's important to illustrate, uh, you know, just, just talk about the, the, the history of some of the things, right? So, you know, I, I'll give you a, 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 a good example here. We, you know, we've looked at conviction integrity as a, as a cornerstone of our work, right? Because I think that uh, credibility for the entire criminal legal system has to be based on people believing that the system is going to be fair and honest. And, you know, we had uh, a case of a gentleman named, uh, his last name is Hastings, right? Uh, Mr. Hastings was uh, convicted, uh, well, he was prosecuted and convicted of rape and murder 38 years ago, almost 39 years ago now. And uh, after he was in prison for 18 years, he, by the way, he kept insisting that he was innocent from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And he was tried three times. Uh, the office actually was seeking the death penalty twice, and the jury would not agree on the death penalty and hung. And then finally on the third try, uh, he was convicted and given uh, life without the possibility of parole. Um, about roughly about 18 years into his sentence, uh, as he became aware the DNA technology was improving, he requested that the office test the DNA uh, information that was in the rape kit uh, from the victim of the rape and murder. And he was told that that the that, that, uh, rape kit had had been destroyed. Uh, he asked multiple times. He was told that it was not there. When I became the district attorney, it was brought to my attention through the Innocence Project that, you know, Mr. Hastings continues to insist on his uh, innocence and he would like to have DNA tested. We look and we found the DNA. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And we had it tested and it came back to someone else who, after Mr. Hastings had been convicted, um, went on to rape and kill someone else um, and eventually was caught and then he was prosecuted and he died in prison. Um, you know, you you need to understand the import of what it's like to be in prison for 38 years when you're innocent. Psychologically and horrible. Yeah, and having, right. the, having the prosecutor tell you that there's no way that they can test the DNA and lying to you, right? Mm -hmm. 
and what impact that has not only individual but entire community, the lack of credibility of the system. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking and we're aggressively trying to correct some of the wrongs of the past. At the same time, moving forward, we're looking for ways to improve our service delivery to make sure that we are working with communities to both address accountability, especially people that are harming our community, but at the same time looking to work with victims in trauma-informed care, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to create a system that is based basically on three corners of a stool, education, prevention, and enforcement. And I don't think one is more important than the other. I think that they all have to work together. It, it, it seems to me that most people would think of the DA's office as um, particularly involved with uh, prosecuting criminals and managing sentences. Uh, and they don't often think of it as being involved with the alternative to incarceration. Um, there seems to be a limitation to the powers that you might have uh, to rectify the injustices of the system, um, especially when the uh, uh, legal arguments uh, that you're critics give um, are that you simply have to enforce the policies like the three strikes law um, and enhancements. Uh, the special directives that you issued on your first day of office, right. um, how have uh, those been uh, received over, over time and have they had uh, a strong effect? I think to, to begin with, uh, I'm going to kind of turn around that they the certainly have had a strong effect, right? And I think that uh, there are some people that are that are being, you know, hoping and, and trying to see a, a system that works more humanely and that actually uses science and data uh, in order to achieve safety in our communities. And for that group of people, which I believe is a majority of our community, it has worked very well. By the way, this all these directives were put together by working groups of experts in the different fields. And they're very data-driven, and I'd recommend yeah. any audience member yeah. read them. They're publicly yeah. available. Yeah, they're very, uh, they are, they're posted on our website. They're very data-driven. They were vetted through, uh, you know, a legal team as well to understand whether there was any infirmity legally. Frankly, the, you know, b with one exception that actually the California Supreme Court agree with us, and they're going to be reviewing, which has to do with three strikes, and I get into it in a moment, every other policy has been deemed to be legal. Right, mm -hmm. you know, period. Uh, and we know that they were all legal. We had, you know, really uh, people that were deeply embedded into the, you know, the legal system for years and, and crafted this. It's not something that I wrote. Mm -hmm. Now, there are people that, you know, uh, have been sort of enculturated in, in the years of high levels of incarceration, uh, you know, the concept of, you know, uh, extreme punishment. And for some of those people, this, this directives and the application of these directives has had a, a, a negative impact on their mind, right? Number one, we are, uh, we are approaching our accountability and our interventions differently. You know, we're not seeking the death penalty because we know that it doesn't work. In fact, Mr. Hastings is a perfect example. He could have been executed and he was innocent. Right, isn't it right? also like highly cost, like, very, very expensive, it's like unnecessarily. Horribly expensive, right. I mean, look, punishment is very expensive, right? Now, that is not to say that people shouldn't be held accountable and people need to be, and sometimes people are dangerous and they need to be separated from the rest of us because they're dangerous at that moment. The question becomes for how long and, and, and what are the interventions that are going to, uh, you know, make us all safer at, at a at a at a level that is both socially and economically responsible, right, right? Right. Because, you know, we can spend billions of dollars 
in a in a system that actually uh, doesn't yield any results. And mm-hmm. no, I'll give you uh, you know another story because I think okay. stories are are important for the audience to understand. I, I have a, a a case recently. A mother reached out to me and says, "Hey, my son uh, committed a crime, and he was he was prosecuted and convicted. He's in prison now." And she said, "And, and you know what?" He did the act, and, and he's 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 paying his debt to society, and it's under my administration, by the way. But she says, you know, he is in prison. He's coming back out. You know, his sentence, I think, it was about five years or something like that. He says, immediately he approached the prison uh, officials and say, I, I want to start programming. I want to get an education. I want to, you know, work on my anger and all that stuff. And he was told, well, you know, you're going to have to wait about four years to get there. Right. Because we don't have the resources. So here you have a young man that, you know, readily admits, you know, I was rightfully convicted. I harmed someone. I'm paying the price of that. Right. But I'm coming back out, and I want to come back out as a better person. And and part of that is working on my own issues and educating myself, you know, being able to be job ready when I get out, which I believe is a, is a, is a important function of of accountability and, and the prison system, right? But he's told you got to wait four years. Well, four years he could be very close to release time, and he's just basically vegetarian. He's coming back out. He will come back out with none of his issues being dealt with, not being job ready, basically on the same way that he went in. Right. Right. We have a budget for our prison system that's about sixteen billion dollars. About four percent of that is dedicated to reentry and rehabilitation. Right. You go to a place like Germany or you know, Scandinavian countries, and, you know, the budgets are completely differently, right? The, their prison systems are are designed and, 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 and budgeted to rehabilitate and reenter people into society. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the recidivism rate is a fraction of ours. And it's, I think it's important for the audience to understand when we talk about recidivism, for a lot of people, it's an abstract term. But it's not. You know, it, it, it actually, what that means is that people reoffend, and every time that they reoffend their new victims... And there is a cost both socially to our entire community. There is a cost to the victim and their family and their community. Mm-hmm. And then there's an economic cost, right? So what we are trying to do is we're trying to inject that into the conversation. So to the point that you asked earlier, where how much of that do I control? And you know, was and you know, obviously I don't control the prison system, but I have a woolly pulpit, right? So when that mother called me, I was I was really disturbed by the fact that this was going on. Uh, we make, you know, we talked to some people. We actually talked to the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, which is a group, it's a nonprofit that works in trying to assist people in prison and reentry, and they have made a commitment to work with him, right? But, but how many other individuals are out there? And by the way, I'm not naming his name because I, you know, he could be retaliator against, right? right? That that would want to be rehabilitated, that want to come back as a better person, but they don't get that opportunity and, and, and they don't have a parent call me or you know, shoot them an email and asking for help. The system should not rely on, on, on having a parent that, that knows how to send an email to the DA. The system should rely on this is the way that we do business. And these are the things that you know, I can highlight and write and then, you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, working with you and other media, we, we can we can amplify this message so our community can say, well, what do we want out of system? Do we just simply want to punish and let them come back and, and reoffend? Or do we want a system where this person to come back as a safer, productive human being, right? 
And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do. Right. And, uh, and uh, alternatively, one of the things he has to worry about <clears throat> in those four years in prison, even though he wants to do better, is the fact that there, he'd be stabbed, jumped, potentially raped or killed. Yep. And there's a whole thing about how the culture within prisons and the whole prison industrial complex system is just one of the worst parts about America. My question is that uh, a lot of people are cynical and critical on you about your uh, how you use modifiers or rather enhancements the enhancements there you go yeah or lack thereof and uh what is your response to that yeah look i mean let's begin by saying that uh, you know the all the data and science indicates that enhancements do not create any more safety all they do is add years to a prison sentence which right? adds re recidivism chance adds recidivism chances agree, yeah. and, and has huge economic costs i mean if you consider that in today's dollars, every year in prison, assuming that you're a healthy human being, is about $100,000. And I say assuming you're healthy, because we got people in prison in their 70s and 80s that are costing us a million dollars, $800,000 a year. They're no longer, they're in a wheelchair. They're completely not, not dangerous to anyone. Right. And we're paying this crazy, you know, uh, this crazy economic cost that could be used better for education and many other things. But, but... But parking that aside, parking aside the fact that uh, it has no real impact on safety, um, and and it you know and is very costly, which to me that could be enough, right? But then the other component you have to look is at the the the, the racial impact of enhancements, right? Enhancements, and for the for the audience so they understand what it is, the California uh, sentencing structure, uh, when you are convicted, well, when you are convicted of a crime. Um, there is a there is a sentencing triad, right? There is a low low term, mid term, and high term. And generally, the courts are instructed that if no if there are no mitigating or aggravating circumstances, you go to the mid term. If there are aggravating circumstances, you go to the high term. Mm -hmm. And if they're mitigating, you go to the low term, right? And that was the way we conducted business for years. That's the way that most of the world conducts business when it comes to sentencing. But in the United States and California kind of led the way, we started with adding enhancements. So we said, well, you know, if you had committed a crime before, now instead of going to the trial, we're going to add, you know, another two or three years for this. And if you had a gun, we're going to add, you know, five years. And if you were a registered gang member, even though we know that those data files are very, very broken, we're going to add some more. So pretty soon you could have a case where perhaps your sentence would have been uh, let's say on the aggravating side, maybe eight years, but now with enhancements, you're going to prison for 20, 30, 40 years, right? So it adds up very quickly. And there is absolutely, as I said earlier, no connection to to any any benefit other than warehousing people, but there is the economic impact, the social impact that are so damaging. So what we have done is we look at enhancements and we say, well, is there going to be a, 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 an important public service in doing this. And by the way, part of my own evolution here, you know, when I created the policy initially, we said we were only going to do, uh, well, initially I said no enhancements. There was a lot of, you know, people say, well, what about, you know, hate? And what about vulnerable victims? And I said, okay, well, we know that it doesn't necessarily end hate, but but I understand people, this is a time, you know, this is a post uh, administration that enhanced hate. So we, hate crimes are up and I, I get it. A lot of my friends were very worried, so we did those. And then we continue to evolve, and we have created now a vehicle where uh, prosecutors can seek a, an enhancement in some cases and in, 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 in cases where 
Uh, we have a committee of, of very uh, you know executives in the office with a lot of experience. They look at the, uh, the, the, the case where the prosecutor is seeking the enhancement. We look at the mitigation that the defense may ask for, and we may actually grant uh, a, the application of enhancements on cases, like with guns especially, because we know we have a, a problem with guns. But we recognize, by the way, we're doing this really primarily because we know that, that the community is really antsy about this stuff. It's not. This is not going to stop the use of guns. I mean, in fact, I, you know, I often tell people we have neighboring district attorneys that, 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 that regularly apply these enhancements to the maximum, and their crime rates are significantly higher than ours. So if enhancements work, you would think that that those counties would have a better crime rate crime yeah. rate than we do, but they don't, right? And then you go into other states where are very punitive, like Texas, Tennessee, and all those places, and, and their violence rates are substantially higher than they are here. Yeah, red states have higher crime rates than blue states uh, and rural uh, areas have higher crime rates than hundred percent, right? So, so if you're if you have you know, a, 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 and I tell people, listen, I know emotions win over logic every day. That's why I try to give you personal story where I can because I know that people, you know, people will remember Mr. Hastings. Yeah, they will relate to it a lot easier. But they will not remember the conversation that we're having about crime rates, mm -hmm. right? So I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to balance that because I know how we operate as human beings. But we have to, at some point, bring some logic to the emotion as well because otherwise we're just not a thinking system. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask about that uh, almost em emotional or, or spiritual need uh, for the public to see the victim uh, uh, made whole somehow by uh, punishing the offender, um, w where that may not actually be good for society, as you would argue, right? Well, and, and, and you know, and, and here's a, and, and I'm so glad that you talk about victims because we, we've actually put a ton of work on victims, right? So we hire 16 additional uh, victim services uh, representatives since I've been in the office. Uh, we created a Victims Advisory Board that is composed of former victims of violent crime and family members of victims of violent crime to inform our practice. Um, you know, the, the, the survey after survey, including one that was done in L.A. County in 2020, you know, 60% of the victims of violent crime said they believe that their offenders should be given an opportunity to rehabilitate. They believe in redemption. But they also were very critical of my office and said, you know, our trauma was never dealt with, right? We were traumatized and we were allowed to stay traumatized. The only, the only thing that the prosecutor wanted to do was use my testimony to make sure that I could help with the prosecution. That's fascinating, and I'd like to dig into that because it uh, goes to an inherent limitation in the justice system as it is fashioned now. Uh, the DA's office has the power to... Uh, determine what happens with the offender uh, or the supposed criminal, but it doesn't have a lot of power uh, to restore or make whole uh, the victim in the case. That seems to be uh, dealt with by other avenues. Um, can you talk about what uh, power you have um, and that board has to uh, help the victims of supposed yeah, crimes? Yeah, so, I mean, interestingly enough, it's mixed, right? You're, you're absolutely right to a great extent, but it's nuanced in the sense that under state law in California, uh, the district attorney has a victim services component, right? And there is a, there's a state compensation board that provides compensation for victims of violent crime, 
assuming that they have the financial needs to in order to deal with their trauma, you know, deal with uh, moving expenses, uh, burial costs for the family. It's very onerous, um, but nevertheless, it's there. What what we're doing is rather than you know traditionally a victim service has been okay. Here's the website to go get you you know apply for compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's you know how you can complete all these forms. And by the way, uh, you know your next court date is going to be you know April 20th, and we like to be there at 8:30 in the morning so you can testify. Right, that was a c- component. What we're saying to this, you know, we we owe a lot more to that. Right. So the first of all is. How do we reach immediately? First of all, some victims may not want to cooperate, right? Our, our policy before was pretty much, you don't cooperate, you don't show up for that court date, we're not going to help you, right? It's all predicated on cooperation. Well, that sort of ignores the fact that we have people in the community that may not be able to cooperate for many reasons, right? I'll give you another story. We had a case, actually, the California Supreme Court was very critical of my office and one of my prosecutors. Um, we had a murder. Right, and there was this witness, really, who was a passenger on the card where the individual was murdered. And we tried to get this person to be a witness, and she refused because she believed that that would put her life in jeopardy, which, by the way, it was very real, okay? Um, so we then turn around and say, okay, if you don't cooperate with us, we're gonna prosecute you as an accessory to murder. And we did, and we got her convicted, and she went to prison as an accessory to murder because she refused to be a witness to support the prosecution of the murder in this case. This case went all the way to the California Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court in a scathing, scathing uh, response mm-hmm. said, we've never heard of using the, the 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 legal system to to call a victim a witness an accessory to a crime prosecutor and send it to prison she was released but the point is that you know we we rather than help the victim what we did is we aggravated her her situation so what we do now is we said look we love for you to cooperate if you can but we understand that you may not be able to Regardless, we're not going to condition our services on your cooperation. We're going to provide services. We're going to provide all the interventions that we can because we want to deal with your trauma. Because here's, a, here's an important component of this. If you look at the people that are in prison today in jails, for men, over 80% will tell you that they have been victims of violent crime. For women, it's over 90%. In fact, they will tell you that they were the victims of sexual abuse. People that commit crimes generally have a journey that they have been victimized, they have been traumatized, they lose hope, they don't care for themselves, and therefore they cannot care for you and I. If we can provide early intervention and we can deal with the trauma, we can create a path for somebody to go from being a victim to being a survivor. In a broader picture of the DA's office, not only are you uh, deciding on sentences and, and prosecuting people, uh, but you are providing uh, help to victims and then uh, exerting some power in uh, the institutions that will uh, try to prevent crime from happening. Um, there's a there's a third there's a third area. Uh, there's the um, uh, there's what you're doing to uh, rehabilitate or reintegrate people who have uh, committed crimes or are accused of committing crimes. 
but otherwise aren't going to prison. That seems to be uh, one of the things that people are really nervous about, especially in conservative communities, where they think, oh, you're just letting all these people out into the streets, and what are they going to do then? You're, you know, you're uh, letting people out of the jails, but you don't have an alternative solution. Uh, what is that alternative solution? Right. So, I mean, look, it's a, it, 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 the system is evolving, right? And it's evolving very quickly. We are working with service providers that are actually yielding some very good results. For instance, work with the Amity Foundation, uh, who's now done uh, peer review uh, research, and they're a reentry service, right? Mm -hmm. They take people coming out of prison. They take people uh, in some diversion programs, and they put them in a residential treatment uh, where they deal with mental health issues, substance abuse, but they also deal with things like getting you job ready, job training, right? Dealing with anger management, all these other things, right? And the people that are coming through Amity, their recidivism rate is, is a portion of for the people that are just being put out on the streets. We're working with the anti-recidivism coalition. They start working with people actually in, in prisons and jails, helping people come back. We're working with other nonprofits that deal with juveniles. So we are bringing other resources and other conversations to the table. That's sort of the glass full, half full. Let me mm -hmm. tell you what the half empty glass is, which mm -hmm. we have to deal with. We still don't have enough resources, right? And I often see people, a question that I get asked all the time. In fact, I, I was having a meeting with, uh, you know, the, the L.A. County Chief of Police yesterday. Uh, you know, we have, you know, we're really developing a good working relationship. And, I, and we have a lot of really progressive chiefs of police that, that understand the business has to evolve. But one of the questions I, that I often get asked, and I was asked yesterday, I said, well, don't you think that you put some of this stuff, uh, some of this diversion and stuff before there were places to send people to? And were you premature? Should we first of all create the places for people to go to? And it's almost a chicken and an egg question, right? right. Uh, is if we continue to do business as always, would there be an urgency to create Alternatives. Alternatives. Right. And, and the question I would argue is probably not, right? At the same time, you know, we have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility for the here and now. So it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate dance that we're, that we're engaging in all the time. We're sending some people to prison that in a better, in a better environment, we wouldn't because they would be, be better off in a mental health facility mm -hmm. that is secure. But we don't have that place, so we know that today we got to send that person to prison or jail. Other people, we evaluate and we say, well, we actually found a program, and we think that it's safer for you to go to this program than go to a, a jail or prison, and we try to do that. We're dealing with human beings, right? I mean, we can use risk assessment tools. You know, the courts do it regularly. But the, the reality is that you're always working with situations that that evolve and people evolve and there's never going to be a hundred percent choice what we do know is that the things that we're doing are more likely to create safety over a longer period of time and they're more likely to be uh the kind of things that as we grow capacity and by the way our county board supervisor is working hard to try to create capacity mm -hmm. um that this will only get better with time and that the next generation of people like me, the next generation, uh, quite frankly, your generation, because you guys are very young, you will hopefully begin to see the yields of this. And, you know, the interesting thing about crime, by the way, you know, people 
were freaking out because during COVID we had this sort of increase in crime nationwide, right. more so in the red jurisdictions than in others, but nevertheless, it was an increase. But we're now coming back to sort of the, the, the pre-COVID days, normal, right? Our homicides are coming down in right. the county and the city of LA. Violent crime is starting to come down. I think uh, I remember looking some stuff up. 2022's homicides went down a few from 2021, which was by far the most violent since 2020. But 2023 is there's there's you there's a bigger you drop. can clearly see that there is yeah, more a bigger of a drop, drop yeah. right? So which I you know we believe that is is a product of you know there's some normalization again, right? I mean mm -hmm. COVID. Look, uh, no one knew how to deal with a pandemic unless you were here in you know 1918, 1919 during the Spanish flu, right? Right. Uh, and that was in the middle of a World War II, so the, the conditions were very, very different, right? But the reality is that we're getting out of that cycle, and while, you know, COVID's still here and we still got to be careful, it's not what we were. So I think that what we're seeing now is sort of a normalization, and then, you know, that normalization brings the opportunity for us to continue to do the things that the county had already started to invest in and hopefully continue to grow that. Yeah, I'm hearing an economic argument that uh, on the one hand, you are creating a supply of people that would go into programs that are alternatives for incarceration uh, by not sending them to jail. And then hopefully that increased supply will promote demand uh, for those programs and then we'll get the supply of programs to match. On the other hand, the, the increase in supply of those uh, people who would otherwise go to jail uh, seems to be the, uh, the the problem that uh, uh, people in the community have who want to see more incarceration. Um, they're okay with warehousing people it, it, to some extent. There's like an emotional core there. Sure. Um, what, how do you, uh, you know, convince somebody uh, who wants to see uh, justice done, quote unquote justice, uh, that what they're seeking is, is not justice? Like what is justice as you can it can't administrate be, it. It can't be retribution. It has to right. be actual justice. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, first of all, and I always say this to, to people, I, you know, I will validate your feelings, right? Because I, you know, it's no way for me to tell you how to feel, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and this is a conversation that I have with my family members, right? I can try to help you work through your feelings, but, you know, your feelings are real to you, right? And it goes back to the issue of emotion versus logic, right? Uh, so I always begin by saying, you know, your, your emotions are real. You know, if you feel, and by the way, if you or someone that you know were personally victimized, you're obviously going to be in a different place. The problem that we have more often than not is that people are experiencing victimization through the, the, the saturation of, of stories that are being thrown in social media, and in certain news outlets that get repeated over and over and over again, you know, you'll see uh, an incident and you see it 20 times in a day, right? And by the time you see the 20th time, you don't think of one incident repeated 20 times. You think of 20 incidents. So the over exactly. So, crime, so right. for you then, it's uh, my God, you know, the the world's falling, and, and you you develop a certain emotional reaction to that, which is very valid, right? So I acknowledge that, and then. What we try to do is we try to then start walking through what are the things that work, what are the things that we're doing, what are the things that you know we're lacking of, and try to get to a place of understanding without invalidating somebody's feelings. I, look, I often tell people, people say, you know, when you talk about incarceration, it's like we came from a good place, 
Right. We didn't. In fact, you know, crime started to go up in L.A. County in 2020 before COVID uh, came in. Right. 2019 was a very low year of crime for the nation. In fact, it was a it was a abnormally low when you look at a 10 year average. But then 2020 started to increase. And I was not the DA then. Right. I became the DA at the end of the year, December of that year. So the trend was already increasing, and, you know, people will argue that it was COVID-related. I mean, who knows? You know, there are a lot of components to that, and then 21 was a horrible year. And then 22, we started to sort of start tapering, and now we're seeing 23 sort of, you know, hopefully a, a different cycle. So what I try to do is begin by acknowledging your feelings, trying to assess where your feelings are based on, on, on you being personally victimized for someone you know, or exposure to to the to the narrative and then try to work from there that is uh, not an engagement with uh you know the classical idea of sort of biblical justice uh what what kind of justice are you administering yeah look i mean first of all i uh, you know the the bible is like the constitution right um we we can pick up a lot of different pieces of it and take them out of context and and come up with a different conclusion. I often tell people that, you know, if Jesus Christ was here today, Jesus Christ would be a very progressive uh, reformer. Right, oh, yeah, right? it's a contestant. Uh, yeah. and, and, I, and, and, and I, 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 I'm willing to fight that fight with anybody because I don't think that Jesus Christ would tell you that punishment was the way to, to fix problems in our society. In fact, he spoke to a different way of addressing business. So often when, you know, we're, if we're talking about religion, I say, why don't we do the Christian thing, right? Because Be if we're doing the Christian thing, it's about it's about redemption, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, I, I, I take this one step further. I don't care whether you're looking at the Quran or you're looking at the Torah. I mean, most major world religions are based on the concept that human life is, is worthy of redemption and that it has to be centered in, 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 our, in our core belief system. So when people talk about an eye for an eye in the Bible, and, and I said, yes, but I think contextually we have to look beyond that, right? You, look at, you have to look at the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of Muhammad or David. Or, you know, I, and, and again, you can go through almost any major religion in the world, and you would see that when you look into it, they're deeply about peace and they're deeply about redemption and the value of human life, right? So for me, the, the function of, of government and the institution is about one of providing accountability to create a safety mechanism for our community. You harm others, there has to be a level of accountability because it's not only accountability to the victim, but it's accountability to all of us. And then we have a function of ensuring that if you're dangerous, that we're going to segregate you from the rest of us until we figure out how to make you not dangerous, right? So that's how I approach the work. But I, I love the conversation when we get into religion because if we were all doing the Christian or the Muslim thing to do or the Jewish thing to do, we would have a heck of a lot less crime. <laughs> I agree. You you were a cop in the 90s in Los Angeles, yes. and I heard you describe uh, some of the mood during that time as an insurrection, right. uh, which is a, a loaded word these days. Um, it implies that uh, the, the, the government is seen as uh, not representative of the people. Um, 
why did you use that word to describe L.A.? Yeah, well, look, I, 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 you're absolutely right. I was a cop working in South L.A. during this the, during the time of Rodney King, right? And um, and you know when the when the and I call him riots in when the riots broke up, which I call an insurrection today, but I used to call it a riot. Um, you know, I really believe that you know this was really motivated by complete disregard for 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 the social compact, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there was lawlessness, and and by the way, I don't want to imply that there were not some people that were rioting. I saw some of those, but it took me several years to get to a place where I began to recognize that while in question were some people that were just there for the ride. There were a lot of people that were just basically the, the the point, the boiling point of anger and the disenfranchisement and the injustices had brought this to a boiling point. And that this was more of an insurrection when you look at the, the core driving for, force behind it. That just simply people wanted to break windows and steal stuff from the store. And, you know, and it took me a long time to get there. And it took me a lot of introspection. And really educating myself and maturing in my own development of, of public safety. So there was uh, there was a different social contract then that uh, people were rebelling against. They sought change. Hundred oh, percent. Yeah. yeah. And 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 nowadays there's a core in the nation that seems to be unhappy with what they perceived as an actual change in that social contract. They want to go back. And we had this recent uh, insurrection on January sixth that was a sort of postmodern representation of that. Uh, do you think the social contract has actually changed, or do you think we still have work to do? Look, I mean, we're always going to, by the way, I think uh, the social contract is a journey, not a right. not a destination. Right. So we're always going to evolve. Uh, I mean, I often tell people that I, I find it almost comical that very smart people say that the Constitution should be interpreted as our founding fathers interpreted. I mean, that would mean that we would still be riding uh, a buggy with a horse pulling it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, so there is an evolution, and I believe that, you know, the social compact evolves with contextually where we are today as it did in the 90s. Uh, I think that the, the, the one thing that I'd like to bring out is that while there's no question that there's a segment of our community that, you know, feels that, you know, government's not working for them in a certain way, and you have January the 6th, there's another segment of the community that thinks that government's not working for the same things that the people in January 6th would want to go back to, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not an absolute answer to the problem, and that's why I often say that so much of this is not Republican or Democrat. It's about bringing our humanity to the place. But, but, you know, when you look at election results, right, which I think they're very telling, and I'm going to go through the most recent one, and this is in Chicago. Right. Mm-hmm. You had clear choices. You had two people running for mayor. You had a, a man that was running for mayor on enlarging the size of the police department and sort of going back to to the past. And you had another man that came up and said, you know, I believe that, that yes, we have safety problems. Yes, I don't know all the answers, but I think that we need to try a different path. Right. And, and thankfully, from my point of view, Mr. Johnson won this race. Right. And it speaks to me about how often people think that scaremongering and, you know, fear-mongering and scaring people to death is going to, to be the path for, for electoral success. But over and over, we've seen that in L.A. and we've seen it in other parts of the country where people, yes, we're scary, yes, we're worried, 
but you know, we don't want to go back to the things that didn't work before. We're a little unsure about what the future looks like, but it should not be going back to to the past. And I think, you know, and I know this this sounds a little corny, but you know, that old definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I think mm -hmm. that I think our public is more is sophisticated enough to see that. Systems I'm have to change over time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mentioned the the dichotomy between the two groups and the two insurrections because yeah. uh, some people have mentioned a uh, dichotomy between uh, you and Donald Trump in that both of you uh, were elected by people who uh, wanted a certain sort of wrecking ball reform. Uh, they uh, viewed Donald Trump as someone who would come in and um, fight the institution from within and redirect it. And he failed at that. Um, you have two uh, uh, deputy DAs that recently announced uh, runs in 2024. Um, so do you, did you view yourself as someone who was coming in uh, contra to the institution? And how has the institution reacted to your reforms? Yeah, I think, first of all, I, I would say that I'm, uh, not only philosophically, but actually, if you look at operationally, Donald Trump and I are two different Oh, of course, right. yeah. No, no, but I'm going to get to philosophical. No, no, I hear you. But, you know, if you look at the popular vote, right, mm -hmm. Donald Trump lost that popular vote by right, a long right. shot. But right. you're also the, not an egomaniac. I'm not. Well, <laughs> yeah. There's a certain, <laughs> there's a certain anti-establishment uh, flair that uh, I think you, you, you yeah, could but it's, but for me is for me it's more about not so much as look I get asked this all the time I'm not an abolitionist right I believe that we need to have prisons I believe that we need to have good police good prosecution my argument is always is what is this what is the right size of that and and how do you how do you shepherd limited public resources in a way that maximizes the investment that we put in right for me, for instance, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. For me, there is something that is inherently wrong in a society where we spend, we pay police officers more money than we pay teachers. Right? Now, I believe the police officers should be very well paid. By the way, I don't think we should cut their pay, but I would argue that teachers need to pay, get paid more. Right? I would argue that nurses need to be paid more. Right, these are people that are in the business of healing and building. So you view yourself right. as, as coming from the center within the institution uh, to 100%, a certain extent. 100%. Yeah. The arguments that I'm making would have been very centrist argument just a few years ago, mm -hmm. right? They have become less so because we have shifted so far to the right in some corners of our society that the center is continues to move to it's the reactionary. right for some. Exactly. So, you know, I... I travel, right? I like to travel. I have been, I've looked at the German system. I spent time looking at German prisons uh, a few years ago, not not that long ago, four or five, year, five years ago, looking at Portugal. And I, and I talk to people in those environments. I talk to police, prosecutors. And when I'm talking to them, you know, I'm told, well, that's just like, you're not, you're not telling me anything that I don't know. This is like the way we do business, right? So it's that context that has shifted so far in some quarters of our society that have made what it would have been a very centrist argument no longer a centrist argument. Look, I'll give you a perfect example, okay? Uh, I grew up in a Republican family. I'm not a Republican, but I grew up in a very, very conservative Republican family. My father, uh, and I disagree with him, but my father was a, a believer in, in, in Reagan and you know trickle-down economics, which I think is a debunked concept, but he believed in it. But if you look back at Ronald Reagan 
when he was president, and you tried to put him in today, he would get thrown out of office by the Republicans, right? Ronald Reagan brought in amnesty. Ronald Reagan understood that, number one, there were a lot of people in this country that were here and they were working and they needed a path to legalization. And mm -hmm. number two, he understood the economic implications of a nation that increasingly is getting older and that we need to import labor in order for us to continue to grow economically. We have a huge demand for labor even now. 100%, yeah. right. So you look at a person like Ronald Reagan, the peop you know, most Republicans say, well, he's kind of like the, 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 you know, the one of the, the, the center, the cornerstones of, of, of Republicanism. But yet his policies today would be deemed as contrary to the, the xenophobic policies that are driving public policy in the Republican Party today, which really shows, you know, the shift. I mean, a guy like Gerald Ford could not be a president. He could not be a Republican nominee today, right? So, it, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a world where what, what would have been deemed normal and centrist no longer is just simply because the pendulum in some quarters, by the way, has shifted around. So now I understand there's a reaction to that. But, you know, I, I, I often hear people say, well, you know, this is your guys talking about socialism and all this stuff. And I, in fact, I was talking to some some good friends of mine that are very hardcore Republicans, but they're they're in their 60s and 70s. So I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. Let's get rid of Social Security tomorrow. Well, wait, well, a, wait minute. a minute. Right? <laughs> no, no, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let, let's get rid of Social Security. Is, it's a socialist concept. I mean, the Republicans fought the creation of Social Security. Right? Let's get rid of Medicare. Well, you can do that. What, how, how am I, well, why couldn't I? You know, I mean, this is... So you would hope that your reforms are something that's going to be so institutionalized that they can't get rid of it. Uh, unquestionably, because they make social and economic sense. And by the way, I don't believe that they're static. Right? I believe mm -hmm. that they will continue to evolve. I believe that there will be future generations that will come back and take it to a whole level that I may not even envision today. Mm -hmm. Right? I but they cannot go back to the past. I, I wanted to jump in real quick. You uh, were talking about Juvie and helping get kids back on. Have you ever heard of, uh, there's two organizations, I believe they're both nonprofits. Well, one of them doesn't sp specifically help kids, or I don't think they both do, but one of them is Homeboy Industries and the other one is uh, Prison Project Act Now or something. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of those two? Yeah, actually, I, I'm very familiar with uh, both, but more familiar with, uh, homeboy Industries, right? I mean, so Father Boyle, by the way, was someone yeah. that I, I admire deeply. He is he is a, one of my my heroes and, and someone that I view through his work as a mentor. Um, you know, Homeboys Industry has been one of those consistent organizations in our community that has created a model for people to be given an opportunity to redemption. Right. Right. And the people that go through home voice industry end up, by and large, doing much better. And, you know, and Greg Boyle would tell you, I understand that some people are not ready for us. You know, sometimes some people come up, they still got the right. the blank stare in their eyes and all that stuff. I say, you know, we're not you're not ready for us yet. And and he gets that. But what he does and, and when I say he the, the organization is created because it's so much bigger now than but it's his leadership and his vision is really understand that. A system that is based in redemption. By the way, and Father Boyle, you know, obviously implies he is a he is a, a Jesuit priest, yeah. right? Uh, so he's he's definitely a Christian and, and a man of God, and and he says, you know, the, our work is based on the Bible. It's worse. It's based on the work of Christ, right? It's redemption, 
And by the way, we're working with them. You know, mm -hmm. we actually have a, a diversion program. And then, you know, people in prison project is the same thing. How do, how do we facilitate people coming out to become a productive member of society? Because by the way, it, this is often unspoken. 95% of the people that will go to a, a jail or prison are coming back out. So the question is, not if they're coming out, they are. How do you want them to come out? Do you want them to come out and be a safe, productive, person that you don't mind being your neighbor right or do you want to come back and hurt somebody else so they go back in right i, I think the, the the prison project is would be would be particularly really good for ju uh, juveniles yeah. because them the act of them teaching prisoners for those of you who don't know I, they if i remember correctly they go in and teach prisoners and how to act and whatnot and through them learning how to deal with emotions of a fictional yeah. character they can relate to it yeah. and work through their trauma etc 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 i think that would be probably really ideal for juveniles to, that would also help prevent them from getting you know going yeah, back in as yeah, an adult yeah and, and they, they create mentorship programs for others right, right, right. All, all the things that we want the system to do right okay. so i am I'm, I'm sort of politically all over the place like i don't really have a home <laughs> i don't i don't that's actually don't a sense of that's a that's a sign of sanity by the way thank you yeah. oh, thank okay. god i don't particularly like both parties and like yeah, an abstract yeah. like like right. this one's good this one's like no yeah, there's definitely yeah. good and bad on both right. sides uh, um one thing that i have l learned over the years is i've seen individuals that i know and just random people on the street and sometimes i come and ask them is that sometimes people living in inner city areas get victimized and a part of that is because they don't necessarily have tools for self-defense so do you think it would be ideal or do you think it would, we would be better off and i know you're going to disagree with this mm -hmm. <laughs> do you think we'd be better off in terms of sort of building a better culture around gun safety and and promoting responsible responsible use of guns and bringing them to the average person in inner cities because they are dealing with higher rates of crime and violence etc 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 and they no, they don't necessarily have the tools or the money available to go out and you know get these things but also we don't want to just have a bunch of people on the streets just brazenly using these tools that are super dangerous and they don't know how to use right. yeah to what degree do you think that gun access has helped or hurt uh, crime rates yeah so I'm gonna give you the the policy answer and then mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you my personal opinion okay. okay my policy answer is that you know, we, we have a culture that uh, has interpreted the Second Amendment as being that, you know, we get to have guns. It's like a fundamental right. It's right. always religious. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, uh, you know, we, we need to look for ways to create responsible gun ownership, right? We should entail, you know, thoughtful background checks, you know, teaching people how to use them, you know, providing a system of, of, of making that safer, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the policy answer that I will give you because that's based on, you know, what our system calls for today. As a personal uh, opinion, I think that, you know, generally when you bring a gun to a fight, you end up using it. Mm -hmm. and, and when people are angry and they're having episodes of anger or whatever, if I have a stick, I may use a stick. If I have a fist, I may use a fist. If I have a gun... I'm going to use the gun. So mm -hmm. I think that guns actually create less security and more insecurity. Um, you know, we have seen that reflected over and over again, school mass shootings. But, you know, frankly, in our inner city, we see this happening 
regularly every day. And I so and I think there's a correlation between gun availability mm-hmm. and increases in gun violence. You know, as a nation, we lose more people to gun violence proportionally than any other nation. And they're they're actually organic control groups there, right? So Australia is a good organic control group, right? Australia was having similar problems to us in terms of gun violence. Now, gun ownership in Australia was not embedded in the culture of the Constitution. So you had a prime minister that basically sided with the legislation support. We're going to make really hard for people to own guns, especially assault rifles and stuff. They did. And and what they have done is they they're they're the 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 crimes driven by use of guns and the violence has been reduced substantially. On the other hand, we continue to provide more and more guns, mm-hmm. and we continue to see the exponential growth of gun-related violence. You know, if you're if you're a young kid today, you're more likely to die of gun violence than you are to die of anything else. Right now, and again, I I don't want to offend people that, that think that this 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 inalienable right to, to go on ownership because I understand it's there. I'm not fighting that, and that's why I gave you my policy answer first. Mm-hmm. I'm not the guy who's going to try to overturn the Constitution. But you have to think about it. Is it a healthy society where if if you're a young child, you're more likely to die of gun violence than you are of, you know. A traffic accident or something else. It's right? not. I would okay. agree with that, but I, I think it's it's sort of an aspect of there's it's with that the, the it's multiple layered. You know, either you would have to deal with one again culture, two mental health, yeah. because like there are like people who commit sc- mass school shootings and or just mass shootings in yeah. general clearly are not in the right mental space, and also people who commit crimes with guns typically aren't going to be following any gun laws whether they are restrictive or not. They're okay. already going to be Look, they're already ready to commit violence against someone. So, so from from my point of view, it seems as if that would be a great way of just sort of creating a baseline of like, well, everyone's armed, so there's going to be an aspect of I don't want to mess with that person because I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. And then also building simultaneously having that culture of being like, this is a tool, this is what it's used for. If you do it for any any of these other things, you will be ostracized, 100% dealt with as a negative impact on society it's not not in the way that a lot of people are thinking about how these things should be handled i i think that you know i i, I hear you by the <laughs> way and, and i think in the abstract it, it, it may make sense i think that the problem is that how these things play up is not that way look when i was a kid and i'm obviously the oldest person in the room uh, when we got in a fight generally it was we threw rocks at each other we punched each other occasionally somebody pulled a knife right mm-hmm there were no guns, right? Two weeks ago, L.A. County, just, and I'm not going to tell you a city because I don't want to give people, but right, we right, had right. one lawyer has six cases presented, six separate cases presented of high school kids bringing guns to school. That's okay? So yeah, no. they That's did not, not good. By the way, they did not commit any other crime. They were just simply carrying a gun, and every one of them, when you ask them, why do you have a gun, I said, well, because I need it for self-protection. Okay, understand, I grew up in a really rough neighborhood. I don't know how many of your audience are going to know where Karahe is, but Karahe is a poor community. It was rough now. It's rough now. It was rough. In fact, it was rougher when I grew up, mm-hmm. right? But we didn't have kids dying there in, in the neighboring areas of gunshots, and, and there were no gunfights, right? 
there were plenty of fist fights and stick fights and rocks and occasionally, like I said, a knife. But now, you know, we have a community, and I know they're representative of our entire nation, where kids are bringing guns to school mm -hmm. because they feel that they need to, and the guns are so readily available. And to me, that's horrifying. You know, I have four grandkids, and the concept of one of my grandkids bringing a gun to school in a backpack scares the bejesus out yeah, of me. Yeah, uh, likewise. Right. Well, I don't have yeah. grandkids, but yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, younger yeah. people, I, I yeah, know. But yeah. Hopefully you will one day. Right? <laughs> yeah. I hope so, too. Thank I you. really appreciate you covering that, because yeah. that's been an ongoing debate that we're having about yeah. that and about we're, the nature of, back and forth of, with of us. how the tool changes the hand that uses it. Oh, it, for yeah. sure, I, yeah. I do agree with I've been coming more towards that. Yeah, it yeah, it yeah. does, but I still... No, but part listen, of me is still like, there's just this the, are, yeah. there's some reticence there. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, look, those are difficult issues. Right. And I think that we, we need to talk through them honestly. And I think, you know, frankly, I wish if we could remove politics. I think if uh, I would love to remove the R's and the D's and mm -hmm. from this and just have, let's have a, a logical conversation about what this means. It's in the Constitution. I don't think most people are saying get rid of the Second Amendment. Certainly I'm not. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I don't want him to yeah, make it seem like you are exactly. either. No, yeah. no, yeah, but 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 you know, it goes back to this interpretation. What did the f what are forefathers, founding fathers, intended with this? Right, this was a world of muskets, right? This is a world of people thinking that we may need a an organized militia to fight the British coming back to take over the mm -hmm. colonies, right? I don't think that the founders were envisioning a world of AR-15s, um, and you know where we are today. Semi-automatic pistols, even. Exactly. Well, yeah, but the, the also like we had talked about earlier, that social contract and how we interpret the yeah, constitution will change with the ages. So maybe like, because I've seen people make crazy arguments. It's like, well, you have the right to bear arms. That means technically, I have the right to have a nuke. And it's like, well, no, like yeah. it's a nuclear arm, but that's also kind of crazy. So like, well, no. <laughs> or if you got enough money, why not a, buy an F-16 or some? I mean, you know, fly it around town. I mean, you know, I don't know, right? I mean. Right, there, 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 yeah. pr there should, there probably should be some sort of amendment to that to an extent, well, but not, not completely getting rid of it. Not completely getting rid of it. Well, right. I, I'm sad to say we're running out of time. Yeah. Your assistant well, is uh, looking at me uh, accusatorily. Yeah, about that. So I, that, that one took a lot. Of time. Really a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Okay. Yeah, I, really I hope you it. come back. This was awesome. Well, I, I look forward to it. Let's you know talk to Anna. We'll set it up again in the future. If we don't want to do it too often. We'll bore the hell out no. of your audience. Yeah. No, you seem like but, it's someone who's very, very, very genuinely like for prison reform, and I'm all about yeah. that because I've known Excellent. people who have for a lot of yeah. a lot of stuff to reform. I'm, I'm for moving Thank forward you. and creating Thank a different you. world. Yeah. 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 Thank all right. You very cool. much. Thank you.